0: South girl! It's misbehavior.
1: J- 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 journal Club. Welcome, listeners, to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Moreno, PhD, here with Leah Crevitt, BAMF. and we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females bringing you the behind-the-scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, fun, and humanity.
0: Yeah, we are.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So I have been having a lot of fun, speaking of fun, with my new job at Grunge Magazine, researching the fuck out of
0: things. Tell me everything.
1: It's so awesome. I am the most proud of an article I wrote on the autopsy of John Wilkes Booth, where I actually did history research for kind of the first time.
0: Learning on the job. Yeah. What, uh, how was it different from the other kinds of researches to which you are used to doing? The
1: databases of military information that was originally held in volumes and volumes of books haven't all been scanned and are available. And so I found a lot of citations to books that I couldn't go Uh and verify. (laughs) There was a lot of that. Because I had this wonderful story from my childhood involving the National Museum of Health and Medicine, it encouraged me to contact them when I needed a particular picture.
0: What is this story?
1: Okay, so the National Museum of Health and Medicine, it was the best field trip that I had ever gone on, the Things that they had in, like, jars that were specimens from <laughs> history were just so creepy and cool. I remember one of them was a mass of hair. It was in a particular, like, lima bean shape that turned out to be the shape of the stomach no, no, from which no, it was no, removed. No, no. I know. And they've got conjoined twin fetuses in jars The bullet that killed Lincoln and what they also have, the creepy thing that I needed a picture of. They have the three vertebrae from the neck of John Wilkes Booth where he had a bullet go through and mortally wound him. I have never thought about that before. Uh Yeah, they were super creepy. They performed the autopsy and immediately just like took out those vertebrae. Wrapped them in some cloth and sent them off to what was at the time the Naval Museum. Okay, did- <laughs> Was what there the any discussion of reasoning? There was no- It's never been returned to, like, lay and rest with the body of- I think if you perform that level of treason, there is no bodily autonomy that you can be promised
0: anymore. Just Say fuck it? Well, definitely not back in the day.
1: Definitely not. I bet the museum isn't getting as many cool new things (laughs) as it once did, you know, before um, morality and ethics found their way to
0: science. Uh, 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 Also, just set the scene for me. How old were you? And what were your classmates interested in? I'm sorry,
1: I wish I had more memories from this amazing trip. I just remember being utterly enthralled and wanting to visit again. And so I got to call them on the phone and talk to a very nice publicist. She must have found the perfect job for herself because she was very well versed in the history of the particular thing that I was calling about. And she was a great publicist working with me as a person in the media wanting to get a picture. So when I was looking online for pictures of this vertebrae, because we fucking have it, outside of the body, not buried, I could not find a high enough resolution for my magazine. They require a certain size of image and quality and I couldn't find it. And so that's why I contacted them directly to see, well, you guys have a picture of it. Can you send that my way? So I think as of now, even though the formatting of it is a bit cut off, it is the highest resolution
0: of that artifact in existence online. How did you come to know of its existence? What?
1: Yeah, it was in some of the records of the autopsy itself that this was collected by one of the surgeons.
0: What happened to the rest of his remains? What happened to his remaining remains? It was buried, buried,
1: then unburied, then buried again, and then unburied and returned to the family to be put in whatever plot they decided to put it in.
0: That is quite a journey. Oof.
1: Yeah. This guy
0: was carted around everywhere everywhere.
1: Oh, and I got my first bit of um, hate. I'm sorry. I'm just so excited about this. I got my first bit of hate mail in regards to particularly that article because I cited a source. Or, <laughs> that's how I defend myself. I'm like, he was, according to multiple sources, charming and incredibly uh, handsome. Yeah. Don Wilkes Booth. So
0: were a lot of people who do a lot of shitty things.
1: I know, exactly. I don't fall into the fallacy of because you look good, you are good as a person. And so the complaint that I received online was, how dare you call this treasonous person, and then quoted me, you know, gorgeous. I was like, have you never met an attractive person? They are some of the worst people (laughs) that there are. (laughs) Truly. Uh, One of my first editors said that he knew that I was going to be great when he received a complaint about an article that I wrote. He was like, she's she's hitting it. She's she's getting in there. She's evoking feelings. And, you know, 30% of the population will like it, 30% will hate it, and 30% won't care. And if you're getting some response in the negative, that means that there's a group of people that are responding in the positive that you just haven't heard from yet. So that's how I'm interpreting." the response to that article. And I'm very excited about it.
0: Appropriate. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking about all the things I read and, and go, huh, they add to my life in some way. And on precisely none of them do I comment. Uh Uh-huh. Hey person. That was a a thing. And I, I learned a thing because I figure Mm -hmm. that's what people do when they read the thing. So yes, appropriate response to amount of feedback.
1: What's new with you? Have you had any successes or failures as of yet? The, well, uh in your life? <laughs> Ever? Just like, why don't we just cover forever?
0: A thousand yard stare. <laughs> I'm very glad you phrased it that way because I had a success, you mean not very well. <laughs> I'm glad you had a small failure in phrasing it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I had a success in finding a fun new piece, fun old piece, Mm -hmm. uh, about failure in research. I found this 1949 paper titled Fun in Research. It's written by Neil Stevens from the University of Illinois. It's just a reflection on someone's life in research. Yep. Where was it published? Uh... It was published in American Scientist. Okay. American Scientist, all the way. I'm going to quote part of it. Viewed objectively, a life of research is one dedicated almost wholly to failure and frustration.
1: <laughs> and people ask me why I am no longer
0: in academia. It gets way more gory and a little bit eugenics-y. Um, okay. Most of the brain children, upon which you will gaze fondly at birth, will prove to be hopeless monstrosities, and you will have to preside at their burial. Yeah. The most frequent test which determines this fate is that of the experiment. The usual experience is well illustrated by an anecdote often told. I take this account from The Social Life of Animals by Allie, who writes... Professor R.W. Wood, physicist of Johns Hopkins, was asked to respond to the toast Physics and Metaphysics at a dinner of some philosophical society. His response was as follows. The physicist gets an idea which seems to him to be good. The more he mulls it over, the better the idea appears. He goes to the library and reads on the subject, and the more he reads, the more truth he can see in his idea. Hmm... Finally, he devises an experimental test and goes to his laboratory to apply it. As a result of long and careful experimental checking, he discards the idea as worthless. Unfortunately, Professor Wood is said to have concluded, the metaphysician has no laboratory.
1: <laughs> I'm glad we're circling back to the metaphysics part yeah. of that, uh, uh, whatever conference he
0: was at. The balls! Yep, just a just a good little romp by a fun guy, a botanist of some flavor. Uh, mint chocolate chip.
1: Yeah, you know, rocky road. No, the mint is the plant
0: because he's a botanist. Uh, okay. Perfect. Yeah, that that works. See, so, yeah, I feel like that maybe ties into what we're about to discuss. Yeah, which is the process of taking all of the things you have read going into the lab and watching it go up in smoke before your eyes. thats Yeah, the analogies are endless. Be be crushed by
1: the weight of its own failure. Crumble in front of you like a house of cards. Squashed like a toad.
0: (laughs) Have you ever been mad at your data because they don't conform to what you would like them to be?
1: Yes, I used to work in a laboratory, Leah, You (laughs)
0: might as well just ask
1: if somebody used to work (laughs) in a laboratory.
0: What an absurd experience. I remember being like, why don't these spinal cord sections express this? Because they fucking don't. And I was wrong to expect that they would. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's why we structure things the way we structure them because we know they don't give a fuck but it's still jarring when you're like oh right no i'm a i'm a person still
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm training as a scientist but i'm still a
1: person yeah it makes me excited when i find errors in some of the source material that i'm looking at for these various writing things like uh when i was researching insomnia all of the popular health websites in their list of possible factors that could lead to insomnia included obesity. And Mm -hmm. enough that I had at least three different sites that I could source for that particular thing, but I wanted to find the original research that said so. Mm -hmm. And instead, I found three original research papers that said, no, obesity is not associated with insomnia. And I got to, you know, the best part of doing that leg work for maybe a half hour, maybe 45 minutes, was to not include a bullet point. Mm-hmm.
0: That was my <laughs> reward. <laughs> Makes you kind of want to put like, this is where I would put a good evidence-based argument for this thing. If I had one. <laughs> fairly odd parents meme. But wait, there's more. Ooh, I just... I just love that he says this outright. Here we go. Most of your carefully planned experiments will fail. I do not know what the percentage of your failures will be, but Dr. Kettering has repeatedly set the percentage of failures at 99%. I can think of no other form of human endeavor, not even playing slot machines, possibly not even prospecting for gold, that offers so (laughs) dismal a prospect of success. And then the next paragraph is headed, Must this be true? Are there no safety islands? Perhaps there are some small ones. The field of plant anatomy seems to be one. He clarifies with an anecdote about a very certain plant anatomist, but I just, I I wish it cut off completely right there and you could read that whole thing as just a dig on plant anatomists.
1: <laughs> I wish that was the end of his entire article. Yeah. It was just, the one respite that you could find in the tumultuous seas of science is plant anatomy.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. I won't
1: be taking questions.
0: You don't need to anesthetize them. They can't run away. They do it very slowly. Yeah. I've
1: seen it argued online that um, florists are morticians for plants. I love it. But I will take it a step further and say that um, they are morticians for plants that specialize in displaying the sexual organs of said plants. Yeah. Yeah
0: what if you just had like a viewing at a funeral that was just a person's genitals cremate 90% of me (laughs) (laughs) put the rest in a mini fridge that would be a really
1: interesting (laughs) reading of the will i can picture your future children that look like you but just different clothing and sizes i'm like god damn it mom
0: Money and possessions are for children. Genitals are for friends. (laughs) You don't... You don't leave your... You know,
1: weird but true. (laughs) Okay. Shared announcement time. If you are feeling like you want to listen to more banter like this and are not satisfied with just the latest 20 episodes, you can donate $5, then all of a sudden have access to every archived episode that your heart desires. If you want to keep that going, you could keep on being a Patreon member and give $5 a month. Or you could just peace out after you download all the old episodes and then keep a record of the new ones as they come out. We don't care. We just
0: would like to buy beer for ourselves. There's nothing stopping you from downloading (laughs) and running. They are stacking up. When did you know that if you do things over time and like you keep doing Mm -hmm. them over time? Then after enough time, you've done like a lot of things. Yeah, that's what I was led to believe. I learned that the hard way with my brother's jelly beans while he was away at summer camp. Okay,
1: I'm picturing somebody who went in every day and took like three and it wasn't a big deal for each removal. Not even three.
0: Some days it was one or even zero. But then over time you were like, hmm? Well, and the thing is, it was was like a container Mm -hmm. of jelly beans, and it was half blue and half white. And the blue ones were gross. Who cares? No, thank you. So I would only eat the white ones. Racist. That's, yep, I don't eat blue people. (laughs) Technically true. Yep. (laughs) Accurate. Sorry. And so he came back to not only like a generally depleted (laughs) jelly bean supply, but specifically like a massive... Lopsided blue to white ratio. He was like, What happened mm-hmm. here? I was like, Not much on any given day. <laughs>
1: Perfect. All right. We've got some hot gossip to talk about that we alluded to on our previous episode, but now we have actually read up on and can talk intelligently ish on the latest debacle in serotonin
0: and Alzheimer's research. Thank you for throwing in that ish on my behalf. <laughs> really feel held.
1: Let's warm up with some notable news. In this segment, we're going to briefly present a number of noteworthy events or findings from the world of science. Science, science, science. I'm going to start us off with some findings from Molecular Psychiatry, which is a nature journal. It's titled, The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systemic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. It's out of University of College London. The first author is Joanna Moncriff, and the last author is Mark A. Horowitz. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter in your brain that does things. Uh, it's also other places in your body because our bodies are just uh, bad students that copy off of the other students in the body and use the same chemicals to do different things. Serotonin is associated with more lovely things happening in our world and we generally like having serotonin around the idea that i was given was there are two things in the world we actually like and that's dopamine and serotonin and depending on what those motherfuckers are doing they cause you to like or maybe not be interested in every sensory experience in your world oh god
0: yet those are the broad strokes of that's always where you gotta start and it always makes me very itchy
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> not dopamine or serotonin i don't think that's making you itchy
0: it is serotonin it is serotonin is the itch molecule yes what great i know So there's this shit does stuff so
1: there's this serotonin theory of depression which is this influential but simplified description that depression is the result of imbalances in brain chemicals, especially serotonin or 5-HT. That
0: uh, 5-HT stands for 5-hydroxytryptamine. That's just a... Nobody cares. Great. (laughs) Uh. I wouldn't have... I didn't remember it. So thank you. That's what I'm here for what you just said about things doing a lot of stuff because our bodies are copycats and miscreants. I just want to reiterate for our listeners, like these are the same bodies that produce urinary pheromones that are also found in hind paw sweat and nerve growth factor. That's also found in llama semen. Like we make a lot of stuff in a lot of different places and the timing and the spatial specificity, like that shit is everything. Everything, everything. Mm. And so it's very hard to communicate that complexity to kids. I did my best one Saturday morning, the spring. I was hanging out, doesn't matter where, in a room <laughs> with a bunch of kids. In and a
1: sanctioned kid-friendly environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that
0: does that make it sound Don't better? Don't laugh at that. Or? It makes it sound like it's a lie. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, but we were going over bio art and biomimicry and stuff that looks like other stuff. So I was uh, showing them side by side this video of a vine, uh, you know, growing and finding a substrate a to grow on. Mm-hmm. Mean
1: vine. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Not like a 2007 yeah. short video. <laughs> exactly. Prehistoric TikTok. Um, Why was did they the- need to
1: destroy mine only to create TikTok? I don't understand. I'm sorry. You're telling a story. Please continue. Nothing gold can stay.
0: <laughs> Tangent averted. averted. <laughs> you did it! Yeah, I did one. Mazel. Hmm. So, Yes up on one side of the screen was a video of a physical plant based vine growing and finding stuff to latch onto and on the other side of the screen was an axon growing and finding mm. its own little you know branch to grab onto mm-hmm. and it was like ah they are very different but aren't they also like super the same in a lot of cool ways. It was great. But in order to introduce the concept of an axon reaching out to another neuron, you had to do like a tiny little bit of context because it's a room of like, Mm. late elementary schoolers to high schoolers. So I thought a pop culture-y way to get into it might be to ask the room, has anyone seen something online where someone's like, "Oh, that cute kitten picture gave me one serotonin"? Have you ever, you ever heard no, anyone online referring to like, but did the kids okay, remember something like that? Some of the high schoolers did. Okay. I was saying like sometimes people will colloquially refer to serotonin or dopamine as like equivalent to happiness and that's dumb Mm. and don't ever do it. But the reason they do it is because those are some of the chemicals that one brain cell spits out at another brain cell when it's time to make us in this case happy. And I just like went straight along with like, and how do those cells connect with each other? And I was super ready to move on to that. And meanwhile, one of the younger kids was like, wait, (laughs) chemicals in our brains make us feel happy. Oh, shit. I was like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) By the way, it's not angels. (laughs) If you want it to be angels, it can also be angels. No, it but can't. that's the mechanism. <laughs> Your face, Amiel, dead serious. I got into
1: a little back and forth with somebody at my apartment complex pool about angels. She mentioned something about them doing something, and I was oh. like, "Or they do nothing because they <laughs> don't exist." <laughs> And she said, yes, they do. And I said, okay. <laughs>
0: and went about my day. That's a great way to say that. Yeah. So, yeah, I. it was just a fun moment to have that kid be like, wait, chemicals in our brains are what make us feel happy. And I was like, yes, and sad and itchy and hungry and nauseous and remembery and asleep. Wow. Oh, what a day for that kid. I
1: wonder where I was when I learned that first. I don't recall.
0: I remember in fifth grade being very preoccupied with a variation on the brain in the vat thought experiment.
1: So back in the 1970s, we were using tranquilizers as treatments for people who had different disorders. The problem is that tranquilizers can be harmful and cause dependency, And so when mood-altering serotonin reuptake inhibitor stuff was first invented in the 90s, it was seen as a a great alternative to some of these other drugs. They implicated serotonin in the manifestation of depression. Uh, But there are all these different types of depression. And SSRIs have not been shown to work with depression associated with the greater risk of suicide. I read a short piece... um, in uh, BMJ by Healy, and I'll quote it here. That said, quote, the lowered serotonin story took root in public domain rather than in psychopharmacology. This myth that serotonin is is imbalanced in people that have depression was brought about by marketing for SSRIs. And the myth was co-opted by these health markets and eventually doctors and psychologists and patients as a way of easily describing what this drug is addressing.
0: It's an oversimplification, it's a shorthand, and that's kind of a big part of the story of this paper and the story of this Mm -hmm. hypothesis, Basically, it's been a lot of psychopharmacologists being like, this was never, this was never mm-hmm. the.
1: This is never what experts thought was occurring. This was never the hypothesis. But we did think we were measuring SSRI's effect on behavior as something that was above placebo. I feel like at least there, there was a consensus in the um, neuroscience community,
0: right? Even then, I feel like it's been several years since a study came out that was like between talk therapy alone and talk therapy plus SSRIs. There's it's uh, pretty much a coin toss, but maybe that several years is like a very short time in the in the metabolism of a, a field. And it's this kind of back and forth between people saying that was always an oversimplified public facing horrible, awful, mm-hmm. no good, very bad overstatement, and others saying like, no, it showed up in APA literature. Like it's even if something is shorthand for lay people, it still shows up in like the introductions of papers or presentations from serious scientists to serious scientists. Totally. That's kind of why I resist oversimplification in all its forms, all the time, always. And is that a good idea? Well, no. Didn't you just oversimplify your approach to oversimplifications?
1: (laughs) God damn it. Any whoos will be. I looked up the um, background on what scientists were thinking about serotonin. And as recently as 2015, there was something calling into question the uh, connection between serotonin and depression. So this has been ongoing in the field, but um, as we've described, oversimplification. So the hypothesis that these Researchers came to uh, develop was they didn't develop a hypothesis. But that's okay in this situation. They saw no comprehensive review on the subject of serotonin and depression. And so they, quote, sought to establish whether the current evidence supports a role for serotonin in the etiology of depression and specifically whether depression is associated with indications of lowered serotonin concentrations or activity. So how the fuck did they do that? (laughs) I didn't know what an umbrella review was, and I don't remember having come across that term before, but what it made it sound like was there's meta-analysis, which is where a researcher will gain the data from numerous studies and, in a consistent and well-thought-out plan, combine the results in order to create a deeper understanding of the findings of all of these papers at once. Yeah. That's a meta-analysis. What it seems like an Umbrella Review is you're doing the same thing but with meta-analyses. So it's just like this ginormous monster project that these lovely people took part in. What they were looking for is research that had to do with six different areas of serotonin doing things. What research in those six different areas have found? So the first one was, are there lower levels of serotonin or its metabolite in the body fluid of depressed people? You would think that maybe just in general, if we look at blo- body fluids, there might be less. And what they found in all the research, no, no association between the metabolite concentrations and depression. This was mostly in uh, cervical spinal fluid studies. That's not a direct measure of where serotonin is having its effects, but you might think if somebody's producing less serotonin, it might lead to less of serotonin.
0: Similarly, I, I was first exposed to this kind of general principle when I was uh, reading about delusion formation and maintenance, um, and the role of dopamine. Delusion. In that. Delusion. Delusion. Yeah, like, like being um, delusional, A persistent, yeah, okay. uncorrectable false belief. Yeah. Because we
1: were talking about concentrations, uh, I thought maybe I misheard. <laughs> delusion.
0: A reasonable, yeah. But No, um there was a study on blood dopamine levels or blood levels of some dopamine metabolite and its relation to propensity to delusion formation. At first glance it was like wait, what the blood it's this is there's blood and there's brain <laughs> and um there's there's like this don't barrier. <laughs> yeah. Space is really important in the body. But just like you said if you are generally pretty gung-ho about producing the breaky-downy proteins or uh, or the buildy-upy proteins,
1: mm-hmm. if your
0: whole body is geared toward like, yes, more of that, you might expect to see an excess or a deficit in your blood. Or not, because your body makes a lot of things in a lot of different places and uses them at a lot of different times.
1: Exactly. And um, I'm going to put a caveat in here. There might have been other types of body fluids that they were able to look at. For example, they could look at uh, CSV, but have it labeled in a PET study to look at serotonin specifically in the places that are active. I'm not 100% sure. The next group of studies that they looked at were ones that looked at the question, are serotonin receptors altered in people with depression? More of them, less of them in those good places that they play a role. No, no difference in serotonin 5HT1A receptors. Now, I specified a type of receptor because that is the main one that has been associated and studied with depression. And That's just one. There's a bunch of other ones that we don't know very much about that also could be the like linchpin in serotonin affecting depression, but we don't know. Because let's remember,
0: what does serotonin actually do? Whatever the cell that's taking it up does, you know? So Yeah. yeah, these receptors really, really fucking matter and the cells they're on really fucking matter.
1: I think that most of the people that know me personally have had this explanation to them that, well, it doesn't matter if you have a bunch of blank. Mm-hmm. If you can't sense blank, then blank doesn't blanking
0: matter. <laughs> yes. Blank yes.
1: Number three, are there higher levels of serotonin transporter or SERT in depression? This is a big one because from what we've all been led to believe and what the understanding was is that SSRIs are thought to inhibit the action of these proteins, these CERTs, these uh, transporters that are going to take serotonin away from where they're going to affect receptors of other cells to increase the levels of serotonin in the synaptic cleft, if I was getting fancy about it. Uh, This is true maybe in some areas, and then maybe not in other areas of the brain. But there's inconsistent evidence with some studies saying, yeah, it is in this area of the brain that there's more CERT. And then another study saying, no, it's not in that same area. So inconsistent at best. Human brains
0: are extremely hard to study, guys. They're big. (laughs) They're they're huge. And people don't let you poke them, uh, except in very special circumstances. One time I was at the Society for Neuroscience conference in 2019, and there was a session on adult human neurogenesis. Depending on who you ask, it's either contentious or it's settled. Um, Part of the reason it might be contentious is that human brains are really fucking hard to study, so a lot of the people in that room came in there kind of expecting to like see a fight um and I was one such person I literally texted like ah oh, yeah I'm about to see the fight uh, <laughs> <laughs> And the facilitator opened it up by saying, if you came here looking for a fight, there's the door. Just like, we're going to be Aww. civil. I hope you stood up
1: and left. Because <laughs> I want the population of that audience to have stood up no, and I'm left to be significant.
0: <laughs> like, oh.
1: <laughs> and groan. Yeah, an audible groan would have it. also been appreciated.
0: Yeah. I flew in for this.
1: <laughs> Number four depletion studies. Does tryptophan depletion induce depression? If you don't have the molecule that helps you make serotonin, when you don't have serotonin, and it's involved in depression, then do you see depression form in these normally healthy individuals? Uh, This is done via diet and chemicals. And I had no idea until I read this paper.
0: I don't think it came up in any of the classes I actually took. (laughs) unless it did yeah
1: very strange i wonder how long the experiments are supposed to last before they measure if you're depressed or not i could imagine it taking weeks before there's any sort of mood alteration but apparently this is a an area of research that also shows no effect And it goes back to episode 25 that we did on supplements that contain Mm. basic amino acids and the promise of effects on neurotransmitter production. Just because you're ingesting the building block does not mean that you're going to get
0: more of the substance. Can you imagine what kind of effect this paper is going to have on the supplement industry? None. (laughs) 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 Number five. Are there
1: higher levels of CERT, the serotonin transporters gene, in people that are depressed? There's this uh, polymorphism in the promoter region of the CERT gene that they were thinking might have an influence on the amount of expression of the gene. No, no association between the polymorphism and depression in two very large studies and very high quality. Damn. And number six, is there an interaction between the CERT gene and stress and depression? The idea that it's not just this gene that's going to make it. You, you have to have something trigger it. You have to have uh, events in your life that make you depressed before you're depressed. This is just an area of research I'm not familiar with. I don't know how if they induced stress or they measured, you know, stress in the patient's lives recently and, and saw if there was a correlation or not, but... There was no interaction between this gene and stress in depression.
0: I do want to say a little bit about stress kicking off various neuropsychiatric shit cascades. Um, Uh because I want to, there's a common misinterpretation of that. And I want to head that off at the pass for anyone who's listening. Okay. Um, I heard someone describe a family with a predisposition for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Some family members had schizophrenia. This young man that she knew developed it. And she was saying, is it genetic? Or did he just grow up crazy being around that crazy family? Did they just crazy him up? What she was going on was the basic understanding that very stressful events can set things going in the wrong mm. direction if you, if you have a predisposition for brain weasels. But that's not the same as saying that if the family had, you know, put him in a glass case and made sure that no stressors ever came his way, he would mm-hmm. have turned out fine. Because there is no way to do that at all without fucking someone up potentially way more. Just because stressful events can sometimes maybe often precipitate neuropsychiatric fuckery, that doesn't mean (laughs) that it's at all possible as a human on earth to prevent someone from ever coming into contact with stressful events.
1: Yeah, I don't think that the IRBs would take umbrage to you trying to create the most stress-free environment for a young person. But yet, the impossible levels that would have to go into creating that makes it uh, unfeasible for us to make anyone happy. So, uh, the other point that I wanted to bring up in regards to these methods is how disappointed these researchers were in the rigor of the studies that they looked at. They took great care to grade each one of these studies and look for possible confounds. They created these uh, different criteria that were measured for each one of the studies. So was antidepressant usage adequately addressed, whether the outcomes were pre-specified, whether it was a likelihood of a publication biased, Mm. whether the sample sizes were crazy, just these different criteria. And what they found was Less than 50% of the studies that they looked at, you know, met those criteria. Do you want to hear the most disturbing result? Always. Okay, this one scared, scared me, but I don't want it to change the behavior of any of our listeners. So when you hear this, listeners, don't change your behavior. Uh, <laughs> the most disturbing result I saw was the evidence that antidepressants were, quote, strongly associated with lower serotonin levels. Independently of depression, meaning that as they expanded on in their discussion, quote, long term antidepressants might produce compensatory changes that are opposite of their acute effect. This is terrifying uh, that SSRIs could be actually making you in the long term produce less serotonin. Don't stop taking your medicine. Please don't stop taking your medicine. I just want to stress to everyone listening don't stop taking your medicine. Talk to any prescribing medical professional before you attempt to stop taking your medicine.
0: Oh my god! Especially
1: if it's actually working for you.
0: Supervised taper, people.
1: Yes. I know that I read this and wanted to have never taken serotonin reuptake inhibitor bullshit, but... I remember one of the things that we mentioned earlier, there, there's like all these different receptors for serotonin, and some of them might be the actually doing something. We don't know. If it's helping you, especially, don't stop taking it. Yeah. So the conclusion, there is, quote, no convincing evidence that depression is associated with or caused by lower serotonin concentrations or activities
0: now the four key words in there make me surprised that they found absolutely nothing because that's they're four separate statements and they're all so different and none of them panned out Mm -hmm. it's a lot yeah especially just an association is such a big umbrella thing yeah so
1: where did we have some of these ideas pop up to begin with When they were looking at all of the research that has been conducted, there were a lot of smaller, low-quality studies that did find positive findings. And then those findings weren't replicated when we had bigger and and more robust studies that were conducted more recently. And it's not that
0: serotonin is irrelevant. Just relevant enough to be dangerous conceptually. (laughs)
1: Yeah, what we're really in danger of here is oversimplifying things that cause people to put aside results from clinical trials that show that there's no evidence that uh lives are saved or restored function. That's um summarized by that article by Healy.
0: And while Amielle is blowing her nose, I'm gonna go ahead and pause it the Totally uncontroversial opinion that part of why we're in this mess is that we're not great at defining function, like of a person, and just just measuring outcomes of depression related therapies in general.
1: Oh, I think it's because a lot of our experiments, uh, unfortunately, have to do with the alteration of a black box. You know, we're applying some sort of treatment, we don't know what happens, and then we're measuring some outcome. And so that's why there's these terms like it affects the function it's associated with because we don't know the actual mechanisms of it all the time. And that's why I like molecular science is because it actually like those are the mechanisms and they're looking at those little gears moving around.
0: Adorable word choice.
1: So another thing that was a factor here is they didn't look at any non-human studies So it might be that the serotonin reuptake inhibitors totally do change the behavior of laboratory animals consistently. And that may have led us the wrong direction. Um, There's also a bunch of different subtypes of depression, like I mentioned earlier. So there's nothing to say that postpartum depression isn't associated with serotonin, unless there's a study that I'm not aware of, which could be likely. What I'm trying to say is that There are other types of depression that this study wasn't looking at the research for. So we shouldn't just disregard serotonin completely.
0: Yeah, and that's all I I wanted to say about that study. That's plenty. As soon as you brought up postpartum depression, I just feel compelled to put a public service announcement out there that uh, postpartum psychosis is a thing. And the reason I feel compelled to say that is that I had absolutely no idea until I was talking to someone who studied it and we were talking about other stuff. Like Otherwise, that might not have come up for quite some time for me. Like, It sounds like you learned something.
1: <laughs> you're just describing the process of learning something. I learned something, but and like... And
0: hoping that you're teaching people right now. Yes, and it, it's one of those things where it's a chance conversation way later in life than it should have been. So like mm-hmm. there, but for the grace of whatever caused me to interact with that person caused me to learn. <laughs> it.
1: it is pretty, a big fucking deal it actually makes some of those horrific stories you hear of mothers killing their kids a little bit, makes them more, I don't want to say palatable, but understandable. Understandable. a yeah. Pregnancy is a hell of a drug. It's a horrible thing that I never want to do. So do you want to talk about another way that science has failed? Let's do it. Okay. Awesome. So most of my research on this came from a science magazine article written by Charles Piller. And it was a story about the findings of suspected fraud in Alzheimer's disease papers. Mm -hmm. So just a little background and a huge paragraph that I'm going to read at you. One of the biggest mysteries is also its most distinctive feature, the plaques and other protein deposits that German pathologist Oleus Alzheimer first saw in 1906 in the brain of deceased dementia patients. In 1984, A-beta was identified as the main component of these plaques. And in 1991, researchers traced family-linked Alzheimer's to mutations in the gene gene for the precursor protein from which amyloid derived. To many scientists, it seemed clear that A-beta buildup set off a cascade of damage and dysfunction in neurons causing dementia. Stopping amyloid deposits became the most plausible therapeutic strategy.
0: Note they said plausible therapeutic strategy, not good therapeutic strategy. And Leah got a little hard. What?
1: Here's where... I'm curious about the beginnings of this crazy story. We could think about it potentially like this. There are some neuroscientists out there that are taking their knowledge in the field and applying it to the stock market,
0: Mm. which is
1: what I want to
0: do (laughs) right now. (laughs) Tell me more about how.
1: Yes. Okay. In doing this, they saw on various forums in regards to... uh, papers that come out um, that have questionable findings or data. They found on these sites that a particular group of research articles on A-beta were suspect. What they did was they started to short sell. Short selling is something that we all became more familiar with in the last couple of decades. It's just kind of betting against a company. So they were saying, This company, Cassava Sciences, is producing this experimental drug called Simufilium or something like that. Based on research that might be faulty, let's bet against
0: them. I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around the unethical part of this because it tastes extraordinarily unethical but I can't pinpoint the mechanism
1: (laughs) yeah Mm. I think the most ethical part of this story came from greed (laughs) if you want to know the truth So at some point, let's say you're short selling a company, you need all the trash on that company to come to light. You need people to stop liking this company so that all of a sudden the stock falls and you somehow magically make money. And to do this, these neuroscientists, who I think are still like completely unknown, hired an attorney who hired another neuroscientist to research this
0: research. Wait, is that how the fraud came out? Yes. Okay, because I was thinking, like, that would be an awesome, like, force for scientific self-correction if you just unleash these opportunistic neuroscientist (laughs) would-be investors. (laughs) Like, find the companies that you would most like to short sell,
1: and Mm -hmm. then we'll
0: uh, look into them.
1: Unfortunately, all of this came, like, 16 years too late for the research of Alzheimer's. So who did these attorneys tap? They tapped on a guy who's been a vocal critic of controversial FDA anti-A-beta drugs, including a new one that we discussed on a previous episode with the lovely Rachel called Adulam
0: Helmbu.
1: Called something.
0: The second way was great. And the first way was really funny. Can I just, To speak on something I know absolutely nothing about, because I didn't read the paper. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's such a good story, and I didn't read it. Um, It sounds like the dream of a certain set of scientists to have the thing that you've been a vocal critic about for a long time, Mm -hmm. to have people with money and a mission come to you and say like, hey, can you find out more about this thing that you hate and why it's bad? Mm-hmm. That sounds, that sounds very nice.
1: Yeah, uh, this Matthew Schrag out of Vanderbilt University was paid, as far as we know, $18,000 to perform background checks on papers involving A-beta plaques.
0: Right. That That thing I said doesn't mean that it's free of ethical questions and... I
1: don't know why you care so much about ethics right now. (laughs) What's your hang up on that? (laughs) Alright, so what he found was some western blot fraud. So, would you please, in 25 seconds, tell us what a western blot is. And the timer starts now.
0: So, here we talk a lot about uh, staining with antibodies to find out, like, how much of this Showing me the... T- oh my god. Uh, so, we can use antibodies that are fluorescent to look at brain sections and be like, hey, there's a bunch of this stuff over here. Uh, with Western blots, you use a similar antibodies reporting what's where, but instead of looking at it in a brain, you just grind it up and uh, run it on a gel. And it shows you uh, where there's more stuff. I- Shut up. <laughs> can I have one more go around to be... Can can I I have one? Yeah. Please. Okay, thanks. I'm gonna. I need an actual minute to get my shit together. We're going with one. (laughs) Okay. uh, We gotta keep it moving. All right, if we're gonna go with one, go with the first, delete everything after that, please, for my dignity. Thank you. (laughs) She had two tries
1: and you are coming into the episode having not heard the second. So a Western blot is a way to measure the amount of proteins in a tissue. And you do this by attaching something that will allow you to visualize the protein and allow it to move via electrophoresis through a gel, separating all the different types of proteins out so that you can then take a picture and measure the amount of the protein in your sample. It's called a Western blot because the first type was called a Southern blot, named after British molecular biologist Edwin Southern. And so as a fucking science joke, Mm -hmm. any of the other blots using electrophoresis and these gels, they just named Western, Northern.
0: (laughs) Because dorks. Because dorks! And I love that little fact. Me too. And while we're on the topic of electrophoresis, it there's we're not on that topic. No, we got to... Okay, it's just this 20 seconds or less. It can be really hard to intuitively understand why a bigger protein might take longer to get across that gel or why a protein with a certain charge might take longer to get across that gel. When you think of a gel, don't think of a uniform substance. Think of like a ball pit. Like... A protein or a DNA chunk is actively moving and elbowing its way through Hmm. solid-ass molecules suspended in a gel. That's what we mean by running it through a gel.
1: Cutting it all out. Okay, so... (laughs) So you end up with these bands, and a band is a strip of your protein of interest, hopefully, Uh, 99% of the time it's not. So you can measure how much protein there is when you take a picture and you measure how much stain is in that band. And what apparently happened here is Shrag found fraud in dozens of journal articles involving western blots in which the bands had been moved around and cut out here and put there in order to support the hypothesis.
0: Yeah, it's notoriously difficult to get a good clean looking band and it's notoriously easy to fake one.
1: Yeah, that brings us to could Amiel fake a western blot? The answer is yes. I am very confident with my small amount of photoshop skills that i could totally fake a western blot it would
0: not be that hard and that's scary to me i am adding that to my fantasy course catalog at imaginary u okay we we've, <laughs> we've got a to... deceptive photoshop yeah 501 applied fraud learn about the technique <laughs> by defrauding your fellow scientists so,
1: the research that this fraud
0: existed in
1: was that of Sylvian Lesni. And uh, Sylvian Lesni was the first author on a number of papers that involved A beta star 56, a particular size, that's what the 56 represents, is the size of this A beta chunk that could make up these plaques. In a 2006 paper by Nature, Lesnay, the first author, in Ash, another very prominent researcher in the field, published results that indicated that the amyloid beta plaques were made of this particular version of the protein.
0: My personal headcanon, uh, the thing that I choose to believe is that this Ash is related to Arthur Ash, who did the conformity experiments, uh, get a bunch of people in a room show them three lines or two lines or something that are clearly different. Everyone in the room except the subject is like, oh, yeah, obviously those are the same. Uh, and then the subject goes, uh, okay, yeah, they're the same, I guess. So I choose to believe that there is a relation there.
1: And Lesney produced these Western lots and showed them to Ash. And she was like, yeah, those bands look great, great. Everyone says they look great. So that original 2006 paper was cited 2,300 times. 2021 saw 237 million in NIH funding going to study this oligomer and Alzheimer's disease. Mm Mm-hmm. Whoa! Oh, wow. None of Ash's papers that didn't have Lesney as an author had visible fraud that people could detect because now a lot of people are looking at these papers looking for fraud um, after Schrag came out doing that. So all of the evidence that we have now suggests that papers with Lesney have this fraud and he, by deduction, is most likely the fraudster.
0: Even if we're not 100% sure of the mechanism yet, there's a clear correlation and that's probably the mechanism.
1: And science is doing a major self-correct right now in terms of, of this. When I looked up coverage the atlantic that discussed well how did this happen why did this happen it's all the things that scientists have been saying is a problem with the field forever Mm. oh we can't publish null results because they aren't as popular and like any of the researchers who over the past 16 years were not able to replicate these findings weren't getting published or even trying because they know they wouldn't and
0: There's getting published, and there's even getting the materials with which to do the research. And so many of these Western blots and other procedures were done with antibodies that were produced not by a company that has to sell to anybody, but by labs. And they're sent Mm -hmm. out by courtesy. And if you don't support their hypothesis, they might not feel that courteous.
1: Very much so. Yeah. Yeah basically that atlantic article was worthless fuck you author i already knew everything um so crazy drama and really cool uh being able to research it i'd like to really thank pillar for doing that great work and allowing me to just uh simplify it and add some jokes with your help thanks writers and now we must get to closing ceremonies
0: <nenhum bunları> ba,
1: ba, 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 Closing ceremonies is uh, where we say goodbye by giving you just a little bit extra. If we haven't given you a pound of flesh already, here's another one that you can be like, oh yeah, I, I, I heard this one thing at the very end that I'm going to take away from that episode. There are takeaways. What's your takeaway this week, Leah?
0: A callback to earlier in the episode. Um, this hypothesis that serotonin is the thing that makes us happy. Nope, not how happiness works, not how serotonin works, not how any of this works. But <laughs> we can see it seeping into popular culture in places like television. So if you would like an example of how oversimplified to the point of shittiness, hypotheses play out in IRL Um, you can look at an episode of Nathan for You season 3 episode 7 he is trying to prove that he is a fun person to be around so he yep he obtains a potential friend on Craigslist secretly takes his urine at the beginning of the experiment does a bunch of fun stuff secretly mm, openly but for Nefarious purposes collects his blood at the end of the day and compares serotonin and dopamine levels in his urine pre-trial to serotonin and dopamine levels in his blood post-trial. Ami- Why is there a different bodily mm-hmm. fluid used here? Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Why? None of this is at all a good well, idea. He didn't need to pee at the end of the day. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that thing you did, the raising of the arms, the, the shaking of the head, the, the face contortions, those are all 100% appropriate. If you want to go feel smarter than a TV guy, just watch that episode and be like, Two different fluids? What are you doing? And, I mean, perhaps that was the point well, of the whole shit. What did find? A slight, oh, a slight elevation, and I think dopamine. But- he didn't find anything because you can't Bad compare. Yep, yep, yeah. 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 Even if it Very was cute, pre-trial year into post-trial urine, it would still be dumb. But yeah, but actually, <laughs> but actually, it's a good reductio ad absurdum. Like if you want to take something, I know that's, what those words are. It's but for the list <laughs> for the listeners, could you? It could you explain it, it to them? If you're listening to this and going. There's no example of someone taking this so far. It's just obviously super stupid on its face. Here's an example of that. Here's like a mega bad case study that's stupid in all of the ways. So you can just start anywhere and start unraveling the the thread of stupid.
1: I don't understand. So the takeaway is this guy did a stupid thing? yes.
0: Uh, The takeaway is these things seep into our pop culture. Mm. If this is the first you're hearing about any of this, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. We're just fucked.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I would like the listener to take away the fact that not that the fraud occurred, not that the mistakes occurred, but that we are correcting them openly and honestly that science is self-correcting, much like uh, an analogy that Leah particularly likes that we will not get into, but you can enjoy in our previous episode.
0: Nice plug. Um,
1: but that science corrects itself over a very long amount of time. It takes time for it to perform the self-correction that is the best part about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's cold comfort to all the people who were who were going and kind of disentangling this rotten base of some, some work that they've built up. But it's true. Yeah. That, that time that they're putting in is time very well spent.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that there were some people who were researchers in the field of particularly Alzheimer's who were saying that they had been suspect of these results for a while And I think that maybe another takeaway would be listen to the people who are telling you things that you don't want to hear. There, that's a good one. Yeah. You can please follow the show on Twitter at MisbehaviorJC, or you can just take over the Twitter for our show. That would be nice having somebody to do that for us because it's a lot of work. There's also the Instagram at the same thing. You can find me curls PhD, where I'm posting my latest articles on various history and science-related topics. And if you want to hear me make really dirty jokes, you can follow me on Trouble
0: Helix with two X's. This, listeners, listeners, I have the most amazing secret to tell you—just you. Just you. <laughs> no one else knows this, but I am on Twitter, and my handle is h o x hawks in socks.
1: Very cute. I've always loved your name. It's, it's, it's done me, it's done me good. Thank you for allowing us into your auditory pathway. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, just do not tell your P.I. I want you to rate us. That would be great. We would really love that. Take two seconds, and we hope you join the club again soon.
0: Even if you have something negative to say, if you don't like our characterization of John Wilkes Booth, (laughs) fine. (laughs) Jump on there. Find out our mailing addresses and just shoot us a pigeon. No, don't. No, (laughs) don't do that. (laughs) We love you.
1: Bye. Don't forget to miss me.